We are told that auteurs have themes, motifs and tropes, signatures so unique they separate their work from the rest of the crowd. And as unique as they are, the Coen brothers are no different. Take a look at their rogues gallery of elevator attendants, taciturn travelling companions, irascible loud-mouthed old men and their flirty, fussy or foreboding secretaries. Then there are the dogs, kidnappings, cases of mistaken identity, physical injuries and of course eccentric hairstyles. They even made a movie about a barber. But another element that may have been overlooked is the sort of catastrophe that sometimes ends their films. Think of the inferno in Barton Fink, the flood in Our Brother Horartho, the tide of drug-fueled violence in No Country for Old Men, the tornado in A Serious Man. All of them cataclysmic forces that so threatened their protagonists they could not possibly have the means to defend themselves. Which is exactly what happens at the end of Inside Lewin Davis. Although the film takes place during the legendarily cold New York winter of 1961, what bears down on their eponymous, struggling, homeless folk singer is not a weather front, nor an inferno, or even a crime wave. No, the hurricane that signals the end for Lewin Davis is Bob Dylan. Oh, it's fairly well, my darling true I'm leaving in the first hour of the morning you don't have to know that much about the music scene in Greenwich Village in the early 60s to grasp that in those small basement clubs, groups of musicians performed not to bask in the glow of adoration, but simply to play music. And so, to suddenly glimpse a then unknown Bob Dylan, recasts all that has gone before in a new light. It means effectively that everything that we have just seen is not so much a prologue to one of the greatest talents in the history of American music, as much as it was a sideshow a minor drama that happened off stage. In other words, if history were to remember Lewin Davis at all, he would be noted not as a lead character in his own life, but a footnote in someone else's. Played by Oscar Isaacs, Lewin is never even near the centre of that small and already marginalised Greenwich scene. Instead, he stands, or sits, sometimes sings, but mostly sneers from the shadows. The first song he performs is a traditional ballad. Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave's so long Oh boy, been all around this world and that is just about as explicit a declaration of Lewin's emotional state as the Coens will give us. After that, almost everything that Lewin is feeling comes shrouded in obliqueness and evasion. We see he has a self-destructive habit, if not a predetermination, to antagonise and alienate those around him. But while that is alienating for his peers, many critics and most audiences found him frustrating. In most other films, protagonists come pre-wrapped with warm and fuzzy sentiments or carefully arranged flaws that the viewers can easily identify and sympathise with. The Coens do the opposite. They never make it easy for their protagonists. Which is why it's not until 54 minutes in, over halfway through the film, that they finally reveal the reason why Lewin sings those songs and sings them alone. I used to have a partner. What happened? 
threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. Well, shit, I don't blame him. I couldn't take it either, having to play Jimmy Crack Corn every night. Oh, pardon me for saying so. That's pretty fucking stupid, isn't it? George Washington Bridge. You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? What was he, a dumbbell? Not really. In the hands of lesser storytellers, the film would have opened with, brace yourself for some cliches, Lewin's so drunk at the gaslight, the waitress refuses to serve him another drink. She walks back to the counter and says, we got a dead one over there. To which the old barman, probably the owner, would say, ah, leave him alone, he's hurting for his dead buddy. Yeah, replies the nonplus waitress, and who might that be? Mike Timlin. Who? Course not, you're too young. They had great harmonies, but Mike killed himself two years ago. Geez, replies the waitress, now looking at Lewin with different eyes. I hope he gets back on his feet. It's a lesson too late for the learning Made of sad, made of sad By the time the story starts, Lewin is already so tired, he barely has the energy to carry on. With nothing left inside, he has nothing left to give, and so he finds he can no longer commit to anything either. His music, his friends, or his family. And that lack of commitment is not only physical or emotional, it is moral as well. Moral struggles, or struggling against inertia, is a challenge the Coens often set their protagonists. For instance, in Miller's Crossing, Tom Regan, played by Gabriel Byrne, is almost ruined by his sense of loyalty. As portrayed by John Turturro, Barton Fink says he champions the common man, but all the while he suffers from writer's block. In The Man Who Wasn't There, Billy Bob Thornton's Ed Crane is found guilty of a murder he did not commit, but not even tried for the murder he did. And awaiting execution, he says the only thing he regrets is being a barber. Now listen to this exchange from The Big Lebowski. Tell me about yourself, Jeffrey. Well, not much to tell. I, um, I was uh, one of the authors of the Poor Huron Statement, uh, the original Poor Huron Statement. Uh-huh. Not, not the compromise second draft. Just what is the Port Huron Statement? It is a document drawn up in 1962 as the founding manifesto of students for a democratic society, a left-wing political organisation whose key value was the advocacy of participatory democracy a political system where the constituents wield power, as opposed to ceding that power to elected representatives. Although the movement quickly rose to prominence in the early 1960s, by the end of that idealistic decade, it had all but fizzled out. So for all his youthful commitment, when it comes to the dude, played by Jeff Bridges, the only thing he really cares for now is his rug. All the dope he has smoked and all those white Russians he has sipped means he has abandoned the moral commitment of the statement and is stoned to the point of perpetual inertia. In No Country for Old Men, Tommy Lee Jones' sheriff is committed to upholding the law, but his moral code is rendered all but ineffectual in the face of the amoral chaos that is being unleashed by the sociopathic Anton Chigur. He's just a goddamn homicidal lunatic yet, Tom. I'm not sure he's a lunatic. Yeah, well, what would you call him? Well, sometimes I think he's pretty much a ghost. Uh, he's real, all right. Oh, yeah? Yeah, all of that over at the Eagle Hotel. Just beyond everything. Yeah. 
Got some hard bark on him. Well, that don't hardly say it. He shoots a desk clerk one day, walks right back in the next, and shoots a retired army colonel. It's hard to believe. Such problems are most explicitly stated in A Serious Man, where Larry Gopnik, played by Michael Stuhlberg, is beset by a series of trials that would test the patience of Job. While awaiting the vote for his application for tenure in the college where he lectures, he is accused of defamation and extortion by one of his students, while his wife announces she wants a divorce so she can marry a neighbour. That neighbour then tells Larry to leave his own home. Larry's own brother is then arrested by the police for soliciting. And as if that were not enough, Larry is plagued by nightmares that his anti-Semitic neighbour is going to murder him. So Larry goes to his rabbi for solace, but he gets none. And all throughout, while facing a serious health crisis, all he can protest is, I haven't done anything. Um, okay. Uh, uh, don't worry. Doing nothing is, is not bad, ipso facto. Um, just relax. Try to relax. The trials of Larry's week are so torturous, he despairs for salvation. As for Lewin, his wanderings drag him from the comforts of the Gorfine's apartment on the Upper West Side, downtown to various cramped couches in the village, and then off to the Gate of Horn in Chicago, all in the faint hope it will secure for him a career, if not at least, some sort of redemption. But this is a Coen Brothers movie, so there will be neither success nor redemption. Deep down, not even Lewin thinks he deserves it. Yeah, I'm a dick, right? That's right. Danny, your uncle's a bad man. Okay. A lot has been said about the almost inscrutable significance of certain elements in the Coen's films. Think of Tom Regan's hat in Miller's Crossing, the box in Barton Fink, the clock in the Hudsucker Proxy, the postage stamps in Fargo, and the dream at the end of No Country for Old Men. As for Inside Lewin Davis... Explain the cat. Yeah, sorry, it's, uh, it's the Gorfine's cat. On the surface, by naming him Ulysses, the Coens seem to be acknowledging the quest structure of their story. But in the Cohen universe, things are never so simple. Which leaves us wondering if Ulysses might represent Lewin's dwindling aspiration as a musician. Ulysses runs out of the Gorfine's apartment, leaving Lewin to go and search for it. He thinks he has found it, only to learn he is mistaken. Yet he holds on to that cat and heads off to Chicago on the slim chance that he might catch a career break. But he abandons that cat, and then later, while driving, he almost kills another. So, by the time he makes it back to New York, he has all but decided to abandon his music career. Just as the Gorfine's cat was never his responsibility, it did find its own way home. So too, his musical talent would never be enough to earn him a living. So, while Lewin has been suffering from delayed, if not prolonged grief for the loss of Mike, perhaps the cat symbolises his need to let go of that grief. And in order to release himself from that trauma, he also needs to let go of his music. It's not going anywhere. I'm tired. You're tired? Nah, I'm so fucking tired. I thought I just needed a night's sleep, but it's, it's more than that. But thank you for trying. And yet, if the cat isn't symbolic of Lewin's music, the film devotes an awful lot of time to him singing songs. 
In the vast majority of films about musicians, the actual music and performance is often granted a scant four bars, perhaps an opening verse or the chorus, just enough to establish it before the story then demotes the melody to background sound. Here again, the Coens set their film apart, which indicates that the songs serve another purpose. From as early as their very first film, the Coen brothers have frequently played with the technique of voiceover. Sometimes, like in Blood Simple, No Country for Old Men or True Grit, that narration has been delivered by characters central to the story, but solely to introduce it or to end it. While other times, Raising Arizona and The Man Who Wasn't There, the characters speak to us throughout. And yet other instances, The Hudsucker Proxy, The Big Lebowski and Hail Caesar, a voiceover is provided either by someone on the periphery of the story or someone who never appears at all. Strictly speaking, there is no voiceover for Inside Lewin Davis. However, it could be argued that if not a voiceover, there is at least a narration. And that comes in the unique form of a Greek chorus, rendered all the more unique because the chorus is a singular voice, and it is sung. By this stage, Lewin is no longer singing to the memory of his late music partner. He is now singing for the loss of a possible future. Jean, played by Carrie Mulligan, is pregnant, perhaps with his child, perhaps not. But while Lewin arranges with a doctor for her abortion, he discovers that a previous girlfriend, Diane, who was pregnant by him, decided not to terminate and instead chose to keep the baby and return to her hometown of Akron, Ohio. And it is while Lewin is driving back from Chicago to New York, at a geographical point that is almost exactly halfway between the two cities, that he sees the exit for Akron, the night lights shimmering like gold, offering a warmth that he will never have. Instead, Lewin winds up where he started. Which brings me to the film's closing, which for some people repeats the opening, which suggests the story is circular, that Lewin went off on a journey and arrived back at the same unenlightened position. Well, the ending does and doesn't repeat the opening. At the start, Lewin finishes his set with Hang Me Oh Hang Me, while at the end he closes with Fare Thee Well, which suggests he might be finally cutting out. But just in case Lewin has any second thoughts, in arrives Dylan to sing. Oh, it's fairly well, my darling true. I'm leaving in the first hour of the morn I'm bound far for the Bay of Mexico Or maybe the coast of California So what about the beatings that open and close Lewin's story? If the scene is a repeat, then perhaps the structure is not Ulysses' Odyssey, but another Greek myth, Sisyphus. But if the beating actually did happen twice, 
Where are the bruises to Lewin's face at the start? So how about this? The opening, just the opening sequence, is a dream. A premonition Lewin has of his own future. A vision of a disaster he can see, but cannot prevent from happening. Which makes Lewin a little bit like yet another Greek legend, Cassandra. Like I said, when it comes to the Coens, nothing is ever simple. <laughs>